Hello and welcome to IoT Innovation Episode 4. My name is Nicholas Knapp. I'm a partner in Thingovation uh, and I'm uh, covering for Chris Hare this week. And our guest is uh, Richard Banfield, the founder and CEO of Fresh Tilled Soil. And Fresh Tilled Soil are a UI and UX design firm, user experience firm uh, based outside of Boston. Uh, everybody always thinks of IoT as a unique blend of hardware and software but that tends to miss the big elephant in the room of user experience. And in a couple of the previous episodes, like episode three in our discussion with Ben Wood, we talked a little bit about UX uh, in an, and in our initial overview in episode one. And the bottom line is fundamentally, a good user experience is critical to the success of any product uh, in, in the IoT landscape. And it's very easy for people to dismiss user experience as, as just worrying about the color of a button in a user interface but the truth is that user experience is far deeper and broader than that. So I'm going to introduce Richard here, and um, uh, we're going to ask him some tricky questions about the, uh, the experience of, of uh, building a good user experience. Well, I'll so, give you some uh, tricky answers then. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So uh, Richard, thanks for, for joining us. Um, Tell us a little bit from your point of view. Uh, obviously, you're, you're a little biased because your business operates in the world of user experience. But why should we care? I mean, is it really about more than uh, just arguing on a website? Absolutely. If you're talking about the color of, of buttons and worrying about where things go on your website, then you don't understand what user experience is at all. Um, the best way to think about it is, in fact, thinking about it as customer experience as opposed to user experience because the user experience uh, moniker describes a lot of the digital aspects of how we put these things together because the word user tends to be used in that digital sense. But the reality of anything, especially IoT stuff, is that it's a full customer experience. It's not just the digital experience. It's the real-world stuff, the hardware, all of the other aspects that go into it. Um, the best way to think about it, or the best analog, is, is a restaurant. You know, you go into a restaurant for the food, and that's the most physical object that you can define and, and understand, but the food is not what ultimately makes the entire customer experience. The ambience, the decor, the service, all of those things go into the full experience of the restaurant. And you may have a terrific meal, but if the service sucks, then, well, you feel like you had a bad experience. And the same is true of IoT stuff or any um, relatable thing that has some kind of digital or internet connection. So um, if you're connecting your user to an overall experience, you should care. That's the bottom line. Great. So... You know, one of the one of the things that was eye-opening for me, and, and frankly a little intimidating, is that you as an emotion for for uh, users or customers. Um, and for most of us, I mean, that sounds pretty abstract. You know, I have a sort of physics and engineering background, so right. sitting in a room and, and, and talking about my emotions and, and what I hope to uh, to dream about doing with this app, you know, that that feels like very strange territory. Is it possible to actually have a real repeatable process here that's actually you know, a step-by-step -step process that makes sense for everybody? 
<laughs> We've got a fly going around there. Yes, we seem to have a bug. See, that's, that's, bug. The, that's the reality we're talking about, is that you have a bug <laughs> all the time, even in, even in a perfect world. Um, Nick, I think, I think the repeatable part is mostly about understanding the human frameworks that we're going to be working. So call them models, if you will. Um, I'm a biologist. And I think of myself as a scientist, just like you think of yourself as a scientist coming from an engineering background. And um, as, as a chief product officer said to me the other day, he goes, it used to be really easy when I was writing code and now I'm in charge of people and every day it's just feelings. And he did the whole jazz hands thing. Like, you know, dealing with people is, is obviously difficult. The, the connection to the repeatable or the process-driven stuff is that human beings are somewhat predictable. Even when they're being irrational, they have a predictable behavior that generates those outcomes. Um, people like BJ Fogg, who have looked into some of these motivational models, um, Dan O'Reilly um, has written a book, I think it's actually called um, something about irrational predictability or something like that. Um, predictable irrational, I think. Predictable irrational. <laughs> these, you know, we're not um, in a place in terms of the science that we completely understand human beings. I mean, we're, we're far from that. But we can start to see patterns. And when you can see patterns, then you can feel a little bit more scientific about it, um, just like you do in engineering. You know, you can't control for everything. Building a bridge in engineering, you can control for some aspects like the quality of the materials you use and an understanding of the general aspects, that, like the, the context, the surroundings but you can't predict for that one idiot who drives his car into the mainstay and weakens the entire bridge. Um, the same is true of, of user experience. We use models and we use frameworks to get a general understanding. And then what we do is we actually go and talk to customers. Now, part of the design and engineering world, that's really scary because that means they have to get out of the building and go and talk to human beings. They have to walk away from the screen, disengage from writing code or pushing pixels, and have a conversation with their customer, with their user. That's the hard part. That's the reason why a lot of these things don't really get validated the way they should be is because we're just lazy as the creators or the engineers of those things to, to get out of our comfort zones and go and talk to customers and ask them what they think. And we're not talking about, you know, hundreds of user interviews or, um, you know, big group, um, what, what are those things called when you get a group of people in the room? and, and um, uh, it's the fabulous focus groups. The focus groups. We're not talking about that. We're talking about just talking, just getting out of the building, going to talk to somebody and saying, look, this is the prototype that I've created. What do you see that's interesting? What do you see that's not interesting? Uh, watching them, observing them waiting for that aha moment where they go, yeah, this means something. This is valuable to me. And then using that information to go back and make adjustments to the prototype or the, the product that you're building. So I don't think that there is a, as you say, a repeatable process in the sense that it's, you know, mathematical, but it's repeatable in the sense that if you're willing to do the work, by following these frameworks like design sprints, which um, I think we may even have a chance to talk about later, it's just a framework for, for design thinking. And then the discipline to go and talk to people and get their feedback so that you can close the loop, that's the repeatable part. 
the outcomes are not necessarily repeatable because you're always going to have the human factor and that's going to throw you, you know, a little bit out. But the repeatable part is that you have a framework that you can use and that has been validated um, in the fact that it's been used to create thousands of products already. And certainly we've seen that with some of the projects we've worked on. Uh, we had one recently where um, uh, one of the team members came and said, oh, look, I, I've designed this website mock-up for, uh, for the doctors to log into because it was a medical device. Yep. And I think most doctors would want another web login that they have to go deal with like they want a whole <laughs> So, right. you know, it was, it was a lovely looking site, but it wasn't appropriate to the, to the solution, right. uh, which was revealed pretty quickly by just, like you said, talking to a doctor. Yep. Um, so, so can you give some examples of sort of aha moments that you've come across in UX design or that you've observed that, that really have changed the way a product gets used or, or what a product can be? Um, well, I can, I can think of a couple of examples where, that we, that, that I can use, that we've all used. Like the first time that I ever used the Uber app mm -hmm. and a car just arrived out of nowhere, that was like, ah, this is awesome. You know, I didn't know anything about the, what was going on in the background. I didn't understand, you know, what the politics were. I didn't understand any of the aspects of how that car actually got there. But the fact that I could open my, an app on my phone and hit a button and a guy in a car just arrived out of nowhere. And then I didn't even have to pay him. So there was like a double aha moment. I just got out the car. I, I was like, I, you know, I feel like I've just stolen something. Like this is, this is cheating. It's so awesome. Um, we've all had that moment. If you've used Uber, which 99% of us, unless you've been living on a rock, you probably haven't. Um, that's that aha moment that you're trying to create. How does that impact? Well, in comparison to the alternative, which is getting in a cab, it's extraordinarily different, right? So what, what Uber did, which we're all trying to do, is not um, build a techn technological solution that's going to go, whoa, the pixels are really well placed here, or the code must be amazingly efficient for this to happen. What we're trying to create with that product is that moment when we go, Everything that I've thought was normal up until this point is crap. It's it's not good enough. Now this has changed my mind, right? This is like right. like the first time you picked up your iPhone, whenever that was like eight years ago, and you went, Okay, phones are crap. This this little computer thing that is pretending to be a phone, that's a cool thing. Right. Um, those are the moments that we're trying to create. And if you'll You'll notice through those examples, people don't really care specifically about the pixels. I mean, in our industry, we do. In our industry, we, we kind of go down our own little rabbit holes talking about where those pixels should be and what color those buttons should be. And, you know, as a, as a community of designers and engineers and developers, we're, we're a little bit in the navel-gazing society. But the people that actually use these products couldn't give a, give a damn about that stuff, you know, as a whole. You know, the aesthetics of it are less important than that, wow, this thing actually works. Um, the first time I ever used Skype was one of those moments. Like, this is a thing that's free and I can talk to my friends all over the world. Like, I can pick up the phone and it was just amazing. Um, and I think... 
You know, the other day something I, I had that um, that experience with the the watch, the Apple Watch. Um, I didn't really get it, to be honest. Um, I put it on my wrist. I'd, I'd, I had a lot of doubts about it, and I was kind of looking at this thing, and I'm trying to understand it as a device. And then I started getting notifications from my phone, and I realized this is not a watch. This is an extension of my phone. And suddenly it was, ah, this is a cool thing. This thing I can understand and use. This is, this is now changing my behavior. I'm not reaching for my phone. I'm not leaving my phone on the table. I leave my phone in my, my pocket or my bag because now I'm not worried that I'm going to miss that important phone call or text or notification or whatever it is that, that my phone is currently taking responsibility for. Now it's just pushing it to my wrist. So it's, it's actually not about a new device. It's about connecting that device to a more biologically relevant experience. And, and as a biologist, I love that kind of stuff. I always think, and, and this probably answers your initial question better than all my silly examples till, to this <laughs> point, is that when you start to extend your human powers through these technologies, through these user experience improvements, that's when you start to feel awesome because the ability to take an existing power, a sense, whether it's your vision, your hearing, whatever that is, and extend it like you would be extending it through a superpower that starts to make you feel amazing. So being able to call a car out of nowhere is kind of like telepathy, right? Having the ability to, for me to look into my nanny cam and see how the kids are doing at home through the security device or whatever it is that I've got set up extends my vision. Now I feel like Superman. And I always think about the success of a product through that lens. Is this extending my current powers to become superpowers because if it is, it's probably something I'm going to use very often. Or the alternative is, is this diminishing my powers? Because if it is, it's probably something I'm going to get bored of very quickly and not use. And I would say that there's probably a little bit of gray area in between there where there are some things where we're adding senses that we haven't quite developed yet. We know that we could have them, but we haven't quite experimented with them. And that's going to require a little bit of behavior change because you're not it's not an extension of a sense. It's a new sense. Um, those are a little bit more difficult to judge because then you're going, I think this feels better, but I don't know yet because I haven't developed a set of behaviors or routines or habits around it. And that's where some of the gaps tend to be created, and that's where some of those products fall between the gaps, where if it's not amazing, you don't get it into your system. You you don't get it into your routine and then it just doesn't ever become another sense. It just gets lost. And timing is really important around that because you can create a really cool thing and if it's not, if the market or the, the human beings are not ready for that sense to be added to their existing senses, it can, it, it can literally lose its power, quite literally. Yeah three things uh, that I'd like to circle back on from, from what you just said. Um, the first is on the Apple Watch. You know, since I'm, I'm more of an Android fanboy, I've, I've had a Moto mm. 360 for quite some time. Mm. Uh, but I noticed exactly the same thing. 
You know, the stupid things, seemingly stupid things, almost trivial, like the ability to navigate by looking at your wrist while you're driving instead of fumbling mm-hmm. with your wrist, uh, is actually a pretty big win. Um, yeah. Surprisingly so for what is, you know, not a huge technological leap. But like you said, it's, it's more uh, comfortable for the biology, right? Because it's, it's not looking down, fiddling with the phone. You've got your hand on the steering wheel and you can just look at it. So, so uh, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, I think your point about timing is also interesting because I had that exact same experience um, uh, with Skype when it first launched. You know, like yourself, I don't don't live in my home country anymore, and so uh, you know, Skype was a magical thing because uh, British Telecom were going to charge me a, a fortune to call overseas. Right. Right? Right. So, um, uh, so it, it was revolutionary. But you know, these days, with all of the other choices for messaging and video conferencing, Skype has really sort of fallen behind. You know, they're mm. Um, their their superpower to use your language is, is sort of fading. I think it's right. uh, it's not the shining star it was. And then on the, on the language around uh, superpowers, I, I I think that's a really interesting metaphor. Um, at the uh, IoT World Conference that I that I was at a few weeks ago, um, there was a lot of talk about the turnaround device. Right, if you left this device behind, would you drive your car back home and get it? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I have to say, actually, going back to the Moto 360, that is right on the cusp of that. If I leave the house without it, if I'm within a couple of blocks, I'll, I'll seriously think about coming back. But I think that's more of a, um, uh, it's a less emotional way of, of putting it, right? And, and, and I think that the brilliance of good user experience design is the building of that emotional attachment to something where you feel like it's benefiting you. So I, I, I really like the concept of it um, being a superpower. When I, when I think of that uh, in terms of IoT devices, you know, even in the enterprise or, or in an industrial application, you know, the ability to extend basically your hearing, your vision, um, your right. touch, you know, to different parts of the factory floor or, or whatever without, um, uh, you know, easily. I, I think is 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 a very interesting uh, interesting analogy. Yeah, so, and keep in mind that one just on the emotions thing, emotions to scientists like you and I can seem a little scary because they seem ill-defined and they they're not things that we can put math around to solve. But when you understand why emotions exist in the first place, we evolved emotions because they're the glue that helps the mechanics stick. Our, our brains are incapable of making decisions when the hypothalamus is damaged. Sorry, the amygdala. The, when the amygdala is damaged, which is the, essentially the, the emotive part of your brain, you are unable to make decisions. Not that you could make a poor decision. You are just unable to make decisions. So when somebody says, am I holding up a knife or a fork? You're like, I, I don't know. Because emotions give us the opportunity to solidify some kind of behavior for a meaningful reason. And when you're a UX engineer and you're engineering experiences, you're always thinking about, great, I need some kind of mechanics to build new behavior or routines or habits. Now, let's layer on the glue. Let's layer on the emotions so that we can make that stuff stick. Right, so, and that, unfortunately, for a lot of engineers, means also connecting to services or human beings. So 
you know, you'll notice that we're now in the next phase of this, this the interwebs and really where we're to see things fundamentally change is where the stuff that's super important for us because we're social and we need the sociability and the emotional stuff helps us reconnect. So the technology is going to become more and more invisible, which is fantastic. And the will become visible. That's hard. hard for generalists, but I, you know, great people stand the psychology and physiology making really cool disruptive disruption. Okay. I also said innovation somewhere along the line there, so you can you can send me an email with swear words in it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, just just to swim a, a, against the um, uh, the current of uh, superpowers and things getting better for a minute. Mm. So, so what are some of the worst UX examples you've encountered? What what really bothers you in things that uh, you uh, you run into on a daily basis? You know, this I, I know you're probably looking for an example where it's like, oh my god, that's like a big idea. But it's actually like the little things that really disturb me. Um, I'm a cyclist. I cycle as often as I can. And one of the big product makers in the cycling world is Garmin. Garmin have um, a lot of sports devices you can wear on your watch. You can um, they have devices you attach to your, your bike. And they are valuable, right? They have mapping technology that allows you to figure out where you're going and how fast you're going. And if you connect it to the right stuff, it can even tell you the power output and, and various other things. Um, which in itself is great. I love all of these things that can help me extend my superpowers. Like now I know how fast I'm going, how far I'm going, all that kind of stuff without having to do the math in my head. But they really suck at the software. The hardware is fine. It works. The software is diabolically bad. So I get home and I want to sync that hardware to say my Strava account or something like that, it's it's like I just turn back time and it's like the year two thousand. It's literally, I mean, again, it's diabolical, and and suddenly my my affection for Garmin goes down the down the toilet. You know, suddenly I'm like. I didn't, I was having a good experience and now you've really screwed it up. Now every time I need to do this very simple syncing thing, it's a nightmare. And so I don't want to do it. So I don't want to use the product. I don't even like the brand now. So it all boils up from these tiny little things and there's just no excuse for that anymore. It's 2015. You've got to get these little details right, which is good news for the engineers is that they actually can use their powers to do something different. I don't think it's, I don't think that, that brands suffer from some big fundamental problem with UX. I think it's the paper cuts that are destroying them. It's the tiny little miserable things that they're ignoring that are slipping through their process or not getting through QA or, or are getting through QA that make our lives miserable. 
and some guy has or woman has chosen to ignore that little weird idiosyncrasy because it's not you know it's not something that they think is connected to the brand they're like yeah but this is not like a big branding issue this is not a big ux issue it's just a little qa thing well guess what everything is customer experience everything is user experience so everybody's had this experience everybody's got on an airline and they were perfectly happy until one tiny little miserable thing happened and then they're like this entire experience sucks so it's those paper cuts that ultimately bring down the big the big projects and the, the multi-million dollar launches die because of tiny little miserable things not because there is a huge big misunderstanding of what the market you know yeah. should have been given well and, and you see a lot of that in iot i mean a lot of companies are obviously doing a throw it against the wall and see what sticks yeah. approach to products and you know just because you can do the technology doesn't mean you have a product right and yeah amazon echo is a perfect example of that piece of shit opportunity to be an amazing device opportunity to do you, you're inviting this piece of technology into your home to do so many cool things the software sucks you need a separate app and please order toilet rolls because what happens is matches in your past orders. <laughs> the <top laughs> there you go. Alexa, stop. So I was going to say, I, have one of those I, could, I couldn't have choreographed. <laughs> I, I couldn't even <laughs> choreograph. But the audio is very good on it, though. <laughs> that is, she's sending that to a to the, then go from that app and take it up that queue and put it in another queue which kind of defeats the purpose yeah i mean i i can sort of smell the magic around the edge of it there are certain things yeah. it does very well and i can see how if they keep chipping away at it it's going to be um it's going to be quite interesting yeah but but yeah not not there yet exactly that's one of those things that they should have just not launched for another year while they fix the details yeah you know, it's just it's just not good enough so Okay, so I'm, I'm walking into your, your lovely office just outside Boston, um, and I have this fantastic idea for an IoT project. Mm -hmm. So what happens? What's the first step, and, and where do we go from there? Uh, that's an it depends answer. Um, it depends how far along you are with your project or your idea. If you're at the idea stage, then what we need to do is quickly figure out whether that's a valid idea. And generally, the best way to do that in today's world is to run a design sprint. This is a week-long, uh, very intense period of taking that idea or ideas, uh, expanding on those ideas to make sure that we're covering all the bases, then bringing those ideas through a distillation process down to either one or two of the best ideas. And if you've got two ideas, they're going to compete against each other. Then immediately prototyping that best idea and taking it outside of the building and asking the people who are ultimately going to use it, is this something that you want to spend time on or spend money with or spend money on or time on? Um, because that first week will save you millions of dollars of heartache. Right? You, you have immediately validated whether that idea is something that people are willing to invest their time and effort into just within one week. Now, it doesn't have to be a design sprint, but it could be something like that. The uh, IDEO runs something called a deep dive. We've done that as well. Um, 
service or do service mapping or experience mapping or a relatively short period just a couple of days of effort and then once you validated that then you would that to validation that this is something let's go and start the process of making a minimum viable product or something like that it doesn't have to be an MVP as such it just has to be something that will fit into your time budget and, and resources so that you can get to the next stage um, and again it's an it depends question there we are working with a um, a startup that's undertaken to reinvent democracy you know you know just owning that space right now and try and figure out how much traction you can really get so you know the the the, the analog might be, you know, if you're going to send a man to, to Mars, you probably want to spend a little extra time prototyping that rocket. Um, whereas, you know, if you're just putting together a children's toy, you can cut some corners there a little bit. Um, so I think it really depends on the nature of the project and, and where you might be in the process. If you're already build, you've already built something and now you're looking to extend that thing, you may not need to do a design sprint as such. You may be able to kind of jump into an optimization phase. But um, the true kind of innovative stuff, and I use that word carefully, in that you're moving from something that is good to something that's great versus just minor optimizations, normally requires something like a design sprint where you're doing an intensive amount of ball busting. <laughs> you know, you're, you're just getting in there and you're asking all the hard questions and you're doing all the hard work up front and then getting out of the building and going to talk to people. So, so we'll, we'll talk more about design sprints uh, in, a, in a few minutes because I know that's a near and dear topic uh, for you. Um, I know a lot of the viewers that we have, you know, user experience is, is a whole new language, whole new set of terms. Mm. Uh, can you walk me through a little bit what uh, customer experience mapping might actually entail and, and what the outcome would look like? Uh, so in its broadest sense, customer experience mapping is a visual representation normally shown in a series of swim lanes, just like a project management uh, Gantt chart would have, where you're showing the timeline of how somebody would interact with your product at each of the touch points. And that includes those touch points that are not the product themselves, but are connected to the overall experience. So for example, let's just use Uber because that was uh, the one that we started with. Connecting to the app is just one small part of that entire experience. Getting in the car, interacting with the driver, all of those are touch points. Um, the experience map connects each of those, those touch points together so that you know where they are and you know who's responsible for them and you know where those things need either an improved piece of technology or an improved service. And you can also then identify where your opportunities are. So we ate our own dog food. We did our own experience map for the company, Fresh Salt Soil. And as an example, one of the things that we noticed is that even though we have a beautiful office, uh, the one of the concerns that a lot of people were having is when they came to visit us, because we have that gorgeous, um, almost cathedral-like space, people would walk into it and they would feel slightly overwhelmed. And we don't have a reception desk because we're a modern company and why would you employ somebody just to sit at a desk? 
Um, so people would arrive for meetings and they kind of stand there like you would if you had just walked into a church and go, I don't know where the people are that I'm supposed to be meeting with. And it doesn't matter how confident you are, you would suddenly feel either intimidated or embarrassed or confused or frustrated. And that's a series of emotions that we don't want people to feel when they come into professional soil. So what we were able to do is take uh, that problem and turn it into an opportunity. Um, we, um, so we experience mapped all this stuff and we no noticed that that was a problem because we went and spoke to people and we said, what about this? And they said, yeah, it's not working. So we built a little iPad app and when you walk into the building, it says, who are you here to meet? You touch the screen and the faces and names of all the people that work for professional soil are there and you just touch the, the person's face and it sends them either a text or in our case a text and a Slack message. So that person immediately gets notified regardless of where they are in the building that their guest has arrived. They can then rush over to the front door and say, hey Nick, glad to see you here. Um, they also do get a screen um, and that person's been notified to say, the person has been notified, please walk over to the couches on the right hand side and help yourself to some we have candy and other you know bribe it's and, true <laughs> um and and that's that solved our problem but it also turned out that that's a problem that a lot of people have so every time somebody came to the office and saw that they said well where do you get this and we said well we made it and they said well can we have one and now we have hundreds of people who use that product because we had solved that problem for ourselves so an experience map identifies touch points and those touch points then in turn, help to identify where problems or opportunities might exist. And those then in turn, turn into a little project. So you then can backlog those projects just like you would in anything else to say, these are the things that matter right now. We can need to deal with them. And these are the things that aren't so important. We will deal with them at a later stage. So experience mapping can be used for offices, for experiences, for service companies. We're doing, them, we're doing two for retail companies right now where we're actually mapping out that entire retail experience. So, you know, I think that, and I think we, we did something similar to when we worked on the game, right, where we kind of mapped yep. out the, the, the entire game. Um, that shows where people are going to be connecting to you as a company, not, not just as a product, but in entire experience. So very useful. I highly recommend it. In fact, most people should do it for their companies. So yeah, I guess uh, to, to sort of sum up on that, you know, from a from a uh, hardened hardened engineering point of view, it, it sounds like you you started almost with a room full of whiny people, which sounds like every engineer's worst nightmare. Yeah. Um, but in doing that and actually really thinking through the the user experience in this case of coming to the office, you've developed a tangible product that is significantly improving the experience of of uh, clients coming in, which obviously benefits the business. So absolutely, and and having having a framework. Um, design sprints being just one of the many, but having a framework like that provides the discipline so that the whiny people aren't just whining. They're actually being asked to provide specific inputs with specific reasons that can be applied to specific problems. So that's why the focus groups don't work because that's just whiny people bouncing off each other and there's that kind of group thing that happens that that'll never work. That that's why we don't do that. Um, in general, it's not an accepted um, best practice in user experience. Yeah. So um, 
you're a very busy man. I, I know you got married earlier this year. You uh, were on a plane earlier today before you <laughs> made time for, for this call. Um, but you've also been working on a book. Uh, and it's a book that ties right back into so the bike again. Uh, it's a, it's a, a book that ties right back into the design sprints. Right. Um, so would you like to, to tell us a little bit about the book and then, and then what it actually uh, describes? Yes. So uh, we are working with O'Reilly. O'Reilly is our publisher um, to produce a book called Design Sprint. And the book is now pretty much complete. It will be published a little later, I think at the end of the summer, um, assuming that everything goes as planned. Uh, the book has been written in response to a couple of things. One is that um, probably influenced a little bit by the, the lean idea where you, you do need to go out and build something that's a minimum viable product and broadly. Uh, and you need to be able to take that thing out into the marketplace and actually speak to your customers. The frameworks that exist in order to do that were a little bit loosey-goosey. And what the guys at, at, at IDEO had been doing for some time in what they call a deep dive, we have been doing as well. We, we've been using that methodology, I don't know, years now. Um, but when Google Ventures started applying that kind of, design thinking to their startups. So not um, when I say Google Ventures, I mean Google Ventures, not Google itself. When Google Ventures said, how do we make sure that the companies that we're going to be writing big checks to are more successful? One of the things that they needed to do was apply some kind of design thinking discipline. So they could find out whether these ideas were real ideas and they could be validated. And so uh, the guys over at Google Ventures came up with a five-day protocol, if you want. In true uh, agile terminology, it might even be called uh, Sprint Zero. Um, they they helped put some names and uh, descriptions around those five days. We then took it a step further and said, we've noticed that a lot of people are doing this, but they're not doing it in the same way that Google Ventures are doing it. They're doing it on their own terms. They're doing it in their own ways. Some of them working with massively remote teams and across time zones and countries. Um, some of these are working with small teams, two or three people. Others are working with 150 people in their team. How are they doing it? So we interviewed tons of folks across, again, a broad spectrum of companies, startups all the way to public companies, and asked them how are they approaching it. We then took that, applied our own experience, best practice experience, um, and my co-authors, uh, C. Todd Lombardo and Trace Wax have done uh, even more design sprints than, than we have, and we've done a ton. Um, combined all that knowledge together and created a book that's, that's essentially a workbook. You just follow the book, and it gives you all the different things that you need to do in order to get from day one to day five. And all of those different scenarios. So if you're a big company or a small company, or you're remote, or you're all in one office, how do you manage all these different scenarios? And just like a lot of the O'Reilly books, it has a technical aspect to it, but this is very much a workbook. This is something you, you, know, you page through day by day as you go through the process. You don't have to read it and then absorb it and go and apply it. You can literally use it as a, a recipe book to getting the work done. Um, so that's been really cool. It's been very, very fun working with them, and um, it's actually led to a second book, which is uh, going to be out at the end of the year.
Awesome. Great. Well, that's about all the time that we have uh, for this week's show. So, Richard, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Nick. Uh, our guest this week was Richard Banfield of Fresh Till Soil, a user experience and design firm outside of Boston. Um, if you have a guest that, that uh, you think we should talk to or a topic suggestion, please let us know. We're aiming to cover all of the areas that we believe are challenging within IoT, so we'd welcome your feedback on, uh, on the challenges that you're experiencing. Join us next week for our next show. Thank you. IoT Innovation is a production of RCR-TV. To reach Chris Hare or suggest a show topic for IoT Innovation, you can reach Chris at cbh at ntete.com. To find out more about IoT Innovation and all things wireless, visit rcrwireless.com. Thank you.